The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, we're glad you could join us this morning. Um, we're just continuing our study on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, this week is the seventh one. I think we've got one more left after this. Uh, but before we get into it, I just wanted to uh, highlight something on the screen for our uh, food and gift drive. We have a food drive coming up or going on right now. Uh, we've been doing for years and years now, benefiting those in need in our community and within our church. And so uh, there's a QR code you can scan there to see a list of things. There's also banners out there in the lobby, Creekside Lobby, Outback Lobby, just to find ways that you can help out. Uh, we'll be helping at least 50 families uh, throughout uh, the season, both with food and then with gifts at Christmas time. And maybe you know of somebody or maybe you're in need as well. Uh, don't be shy. Please uh, reach out to me and we can add you to the list. We would love to assist more families. And we're just so thankful for your generosity. Uh, so we're looking today at uh, serving and hospitality when it comes to spiritual disciplines. And uh, these things we've been studying over these past weeks uh, have all been things that really are other-centered uh, disciplines. Now, even studying God's word, you may say, well, that's a self-focused thing, but really it leads you to be others-centered. And so all these things can fall under that window of living out a gospel-centered life. Last week's sermon that Chase gave uh, just gave me a good reminder of how hospitality and serving goes hand in hand with giving. One of the verses that he used was Ephesians 4:28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we have this idea that, yes, we are generous, but we're generous toward others. And today that's what we're gonna look at I'm convinced that radical hospitality and extravagant generosity should inform everything that we do in the Lord's name. And so when we think about that, from the way we decide on which opportunities to take up, what to do with our time, uh, talent, and treasures to others, today we're gonna closely examine serving and hospitality. We'll look at them separately as seen in scripture in real life examples, but also see how they kind of mesh together and go hand in hand. So when it comes to serving, you could ask the question, what is the root of serving? What is the basis of what we call serving? And it comes from a Hebrew, Hebrew word called avoda. And that Hebrew word avoda is found all the way back in Genesis 2.15. And this one word can be used interchangeably with work, worship, and service. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's avoda. You see how these things aren't separate. That we're living lives that are meshed together with our work, with our worship, and with the way that we serve God and others. So Matthew 20 gives us a good example of this and what Jesus challenges uh, his disciples and all of us when it comes to serving. Jesus encounters a mother of James and John. Some might call her a helicopter mom. And if you're not familiar with that term, it might be you. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't even think I need to explain it. That picture kind of sums it up. But this helicopter mom of James and John was coming to Jesus and saying, hey, you know, they're already in the inner circle. I don't know what more she wants, right? 
the three, James, John, and Peter, but no, she needs a little more. She's like, hey, could you hook my sons up with the most prized place at your right hand and the left? You know, Jesus, he's so kind and gracious. He just doesn't make her feel real dumb. But he does say something that's interesting. He says, yeah, you really don't know what you're asking for to be at my right hand and be at my left. Your sons will understand that one day because they actually gave their lives for the gospel. But the right and hand and left of Jesus was what? They were crosses. And so this is what she's asking for. She was asking for a special place and he's like, uh, you don't even know what you're asking for. And just like in a family or even a team, I imagine like a team, like uh, some mom comes for special treatment for this one player and the rest of the team gets wind of it, right? What happens to that team? To put it nicely, they're pretty ticked, right? And so these 10 disciples are like, hold on a second. What is your mom saying? And so they're ticked and they, they recognize that and Jesus recognized that and as a good leader that he is, he gathers them up and begins to teach them one of the most iconic lessons he could teach to his disciples and to us. It's found in verse 25 to 28 of Matthew 20. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever should be great among you must be your servant. Whoever be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's Jesus. You want this elevated position? You are going to have an elevated position, maybe not the one you wanted, but you want that position, then you should use it for the idea of serving others. And at times as believers, when we hear a message like this, oftentimes we can feel a little manipulated, you know, when there's a need out there. Uh, sometimes, whether it's like children's ministry or youth ministry, I've been guilty of this over the years to kind of guilt trip people. Hey, if no one's there to show up to serve, your kids are just going to burn the building down, right? And so you kind of get this manipulation mode of serving, like, you know, what's going to happen to the children, you know, if you don't serve, right? I don't know where that voice came from. But... Uh, <laughs> But oftentimes we feel manipulated. We feel manipulated and, and we don't want to do that today. This type of commitment, it usually doesn't last when you're manipulated because you're doing it with false motives. On the contrary, a person who is being renewed and shaped by the gospel, they see their service as a natural response. Tim Keller puts it this way, Christians renewed by the gospel render sacrificial service to neighbors, the poor, the community, and city around them. It's our calling. We have a calling to serve. So how does it become authentic and natural? How does it become something that's not forced and not manipulated and not that I have to do this? And I feel bad, you know, for some people, especially nonprofits where they, they have to do this sometimes because nobody's stepping up. So I got to do those things, right? But how does it become authentic and natural? And in the conversations that Candace and I had, my wife about... Uh, things coming up and as I teach uh, we had a good chance to talk on the way to midway to a football game this past Tuesday and one of the things she said about this topic is you know it really just comes down to obedience now we have different gifts and we'll get into that you know serving and hospitality we have different gifts and some are stronger than others but 
There's not an option here that, oh, I'm not gifted, so I don't do this. But it comes down to obedience, just like as a parent, right? If you're trying to teach your kid to obey, future parents, parents that have been parents, parents in the middle, whatever it is, if you're trying to teach them to obey, sometimes it comes down to a simple statement that you just you know, have in your back pocket, right? Because I said so. And most of the kids don't like that statement, but most likely you know better. You've been around the block a few times. You understand, because I said so. Now that's coming from a human, a person that has a sin nature. But when it comes to God and Jesus in his word, to say, because I said so, is the only reason you really need to obey. It's coming from the creator not a fallen human being. And so simple obedience is important. And then also throughout the gospel, John speaks of what it looks like to have an abundant life and the authenticity and it coming natural comes from abiding in Jesus. John 15, five says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit from apart from me, you can do nothing. So we can understand from this verse, we can do absolutely nothing of eternal significance without abiding in Jesus. But oftentimes we try to serve without abiding and it doesn't go well. What does serving without abiding look like? It's kind of the equivalent of the acts of kindness movement, right? It's like just do a good deed for just good deed's sake with really no follow-up or no interaction or no hospitality or no anything involved with it. Just, now that's a great gesture. If you wanna do that for me today, that's great, whatever. But that's not really what he's getting at when it comes to serving. We all like a free gift and a free meal, but that's not what we're talking about here. See, if you do enough acts of kindness with the intention of being noticed or feeling good about yourself without getting that desired attention or affirmation, you'll soon get burned out. And you won't want to do it anymore because it's not feeding you. It's not feeding you. Serving without abiding is empty. Serving without abiding leaves us always looking for the next thing because the particular thing we jumped into isn't feeding us anymore because we've made it all about us. What does serving while abiding look like? Serving in the process of abiding can be one of the most rewarding experiences you've ever had in your whole life. We're always chasing that next experience. When you serve while abiding, it is absolutely amazing. It's not dependent on the activity to feed us, but instead we're being fed by the Spirit. And the spirit feeds us and drives us so we don't depend on that activity and look at that activity as letting us down or the people involved that we're serving to let us down because they didn't respond the way we wanted them to. But instead, as we abide in Jesus, we get a different answer. It's absolute, utter joy. Not dependent on the person and not dependent on the thing. So we abide and we It can be authentic and it can be natural. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He came that you can have life and have it abundantly. And part of that abundant life, a key part of that is serving others, is giving of your time, your energy, your talents, your possessions to serve others. 
As I'm thinking about a personal example of this, the first person that popped in my mind, it's not because she's a daughter of mine, but it literally is just because that's the first person I thought of was my daughter, Kendall. When I think about some things that she's been through and things that she's come alongside, you know, me along the way, I think, oh, well, she serves because of this, and it's really not the case that I'll explain later, but she came to us one day, my wife and I, and she wanted to ditch volleyball. She was doing volleyball, basketball, soccer, and maybe not soccer at the same time, but track and all these things. She's like, I need to cut something out. And her knowing me, she knew she had to come with me, to me with some good reasons because I didn't want her just to sit around and do nothing, right? Just sit on your phone on the couch, you know, just endlessly whatever you're doing. I don't know what you do with that thing. And so uh, she came, she was preemptively active, and she you know what she did with us? She brought her Chromebook to the living room, got the HDMI cable, plugged it into the TV, or I don't know what, she cast it up there, whatever she did, and she made a PowerPoint. She made a PowerPoint on why it was okay for her to quit volleyball. I'm like, dude, this is impressive. This sounds like something I would do if I had that technology back in the day, right? She comes at us with a PowerPoint. Not only was it a PowerPoint, one of the slides in there was so that it could free her up to serve. Now, some of you are like, that is a noble statement. But if you know my role here at TBC, you know that it could also be a manipulating slide because I'm the local outreach pastor and I'm the one that's supposed to be pushing everybody to serve. And she says, frees me up to serve, daddy. Right? So Candace and I both looked at each other like, oh man, she's trying to get at us here and she's really smart. Sounds like she's been doing her homework. But what's interesting about that, our feeling of manipulation quickly turned to the fact that she wasn't lying. That actually was one of her main motivating factors. Each week of this semester, she's still working on her license. You can give her a hard time if you see her. She should have had it months ago. But each week, you know what she's doing? On Monday and Thursday, she's finding rides from us and others to get to Canyon Creek and called to play to surf. I don't do that to pump her up because she's my kid, because here's why. I texted her and I said, hey, give me some reasons why you do this. Like, what are some motivating factors? And you know, selfishly, you know, I wanted her to reply by saying things like, well, I've watched it in your life, right? This is what you do for a job, and we've been doing lots of things together. So I wanted those replies. But what I got was even better, way better. This is what she said. She said, I don't really know except that God calls us to serve. It honors him. And this is how I grow my faith. That's it. I can go sit down. <laughs> I mean, it's just, there it is. I don't really know why except this. And this is what we're called to, to serve others, to give of our time and our energy, and maybe even take some inspiration, like I did for my own daughter this week, of why I can live out an authentic and natural service to God. But we're also talking about hospitality today. Hospitality is friendly and generous reception, entertainment of guests, visitors, or strangers. 
In Romans 12, Paul talks about the marks of a true Christian. And this list includes showing hospitality in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And when we think about hospitality, we can probably lump it into two groups. One group being friends, neighbors, maybe kids from the sports team, having them over, things like that. And then maybe the other group being those what we call on the margins of society, those in need, those who have difficulty, maybe at feed my sheep or, or maybe difficult times that they fed, you know, given things of foster love or other organizations that are out there. So we might look at it that way, which we'll kind of mesh them together in a minute, but let's look at them separately for a minute. Acts 2 44 to 47 is where we can find family, friends, neighbors. It says, all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they're having communion together in their homes. They're eating together in their homes. And you know what? This hospitality, if you notice that statement, having favor with all, this hospitality pointed people to Jesus. It wasn't just some random thing. It pointed people to Jesus. And for you, as you think, especially as the holidays coming up, right? There's some friends and family you probably don't want in your house. If we're all honest, they're in your head right now. You may be nudging them, I don't know. But there are people that we don't want to be hospitable to to them, and you know what? Those are the ones that God's calling you to be hospitable to. And we'll see this a little later. It's not the idea that they're nice to you, so you're nice to them, right? Hospitality is different. When addressing the challenge of showing hospitality to an unbelieving neighbor, Rosario Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, states, one option is to build the walls higher, declare more vociferously that our homes are our castles, and since the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we best get inside, thank God for the moat, and draw up the bridge. Doing so practices war on this world, but not the kind of spiritual warfare that drives out darkness and brings in the kindness of the gospel. This type of hospitality is being willing to be inconvenienced. It's something you grow into. Some of us are, you know, some of you may be gifted in hospitality. If small group needs a house, you just answer the call. Just like my friend Lisa, who's back here, Lisa Fernie. If if we need a house, Lisa's doing it. It's not easy for her, but she's gifted in that area. And some of you are gifted there. But just because you're not gifted is not an excuse to not do it. We're called to pursue it anyway, and we need to be affirmed in this area that a mess is actually okay. Actually, a mess might even be better because the people you invite in actually know you're not just a robot, that you actually live life and things get messy, and you can invite them in the mess. You're living with open hands, right? Not being in control of everything, but being willing to invite people in even in the mess. See, it's not about gifting. Again, it's about obedience. Then we think about hospitality to those in the margins of society. It's, you know, interesting how we decide. We get to decide who's our neighbor. We get to decide, you know, who we're going to welcome in. Keep these people at arm's length and welcome in those who are like us. Those who look like us. Those who can treat us well. Those who we can benefit mutually from. But Jesus time and time again shows a different picture. 
Even in these notes, I'm separating the two when they still should be meshed together. Richard Beck in his book, Unclean, does a masterful job of identifying the longstanding cultural rules concerning what is clean and unclean. He helps the reader understand how Old Testament law, culture, and society uh, have shaped what we view as pure. He explains the transformative work of Jesus in how we view others and how it should influence us in the realm of hospitality. So we come at it like this. Maybe I can explain a little further. Back then in the New Testament and even further back in the Old Testament, you had disease and you had diseased people. And so you had to keep them in an arm's length for your health, you know, and you had to keep them out here. And so here was the diseased, here was the impure, the unclean, and you had all kind of laws about it. And even like lately, like even back in some decades back, you know, you had AIDS come to the surface for us, you know, and oh, this thing is gonna destroy everyone. I can't have anybody near that, you know, back with Magic Johnson playing the NBA, you know, and it's like, oh, he can't even be on the court, you know, with us. And, and, and it's just the idea of impurity and uncleanness. And I'm not saying, you know, just ditch all that and, you know, just eat all the germs up. You know, I'm not saying that at all. But the idea of us uh, being able to determine who's clean, who's unclean. And in our minds, we go through this whole filtering system. And what he does in his book is pretty powerful. He helps us see that what Jesus did was he purposefully went to the unclean. Look at it time and time again in scripture. A man possessed by a demon in, in this grave. He comes off a boat and he meets this dude. Then he meets this woman who was unclean. And he just time and time again, he goes to the unclean. And you know what happens to them? They become clean. He goes what society says and even health-wise says impure and he does what? He makes them pure. And you're like, well, that's Jesus. He's the son of God. Well, if you call yourself a believer, guess who's living inside of you? Yeah, the church answer, it's Jesus. So you have the son of God. You have the opportunity to reverse this trend of society, of pushing people out and keeping them out, but instead welcoming them and showing them Jesus. Letting them see that there's something different and just like the early church, that reputation goes out. And man, I see it. I'm looking at people even now that show this on a weekly basis. And the reputation in our community from this body is amazing in this. But it's also a challenge for us to continue. So we think about how it changes us. Beck says this, here in Jesus, we see a reversal, a positive contamination. Contact cleanses rather than pollutes. But this isn't a new concept that he came up with. You can look at Luke chapter 10. This is where he got it from, Luke 10, 29 to 36. We're not gonna read it all together, but you can see it if you wanna follow along. When Jesus was asked about eternal life by a lawyer, what did Jesus answer? He answered in a unique way. He actually pointed him back to something he could be familiar with, which was the Shema found in Deuteronomy. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer was familiar with that statement, right? But he wanted to ask a little further and say, all right, maybe there's a loophole here. And he says, who's my neighbor then? 
Who's my neighbor? I want to know. Define to me my neighbor. How did Jesus reply? Did he say, well, it's the people on your street and start naming people on the street because he could have done that. Did he say, oh, it's in your law office, this place you rent, this building, uh, you know, Jim Bob down the, the hallway. I don't think they had Jim Bobs back then, but if they did, you know, maybe, oh, it's, it's this joker down here that you need to share your faith with. Now, what did he use it as an example? He told him a story found in Luke 10, verse 29. He told him a story about a man who was beaten, robbed, and left for dead. He told him of two men, the religious leaders, who would have been or should have been the ones to first offer aid, and you know what they did? They did this when they saw him over here and walked across the street pretending not to see him. And then Jesus goes even further and says, here's the example, a Samaritan. What? Not a Samaritan. You can't use a Samaritan as an example for this. Samaritan was the most hated group of people in society. They were hated by the Jews and Gentiles. They're in the middle, mixed race of people, and everyone hated them. And Jesus uses him as the hero. And here's what the Samaritan does. He recognized that all in society were his neighbors. He met the man in his time of need. He had compassion on him. He bandaged up his wounds, sent him on his own animal to an inn to take care of him and continue to look out for him in the future. He did all these things. He didn't just give him a meal and say, good luck. He actually bandaged his wounds, gave him his own animal, walked beside the animal, took him to the inn, and said, I'll be back to pay whatever he owes. He continued on with him. The Good Samaritan is a great example of supernaturally fast-forwarding the relationship. You ever heard of that term before? I didn't hear that term either until it popped in my head a staff meeting and Dave Tate's like, hey, that's a good one. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I'll repeat it, I guess. But then I started thinking about it and it was like, oh, wait, this is it. God brings people in our path and we get to encounter them in hospitality and that hospitality, just like in Acts 2, it fast forwards the relationship to go deeper than you thought it could in a matter of days and weeks to the fact that they get to see this and you become friends. See, one of the general principles that we suffer from, I would say, is the return the favor mentality here in America. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, you know, hook me up. And, and Jesus blows that idea up when it comes to hospitality. Luke 14, 12 to 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now again, we said there's a balance, so he does talk about hospitality, especially, like we said, in the early church. But when he's asked for an examples, he gives these examples. Bob Goff puts it this way in his book, Love Does. Seek to spend time with the kind of people most others spend their lives trying to avoid. There's a good goal. So some of you might be paralyzed by the thought of hospitality. Some of you in the thought of, you know, you opening your homes, you start twitching because it's not perfect or it's not right the way it should be. Jen Wilkin puts it this way. Orderly house or not, hospitality throws wide the doors. It offers itself expecting nothing in return. It keeps no record of its service, counts no cost, craves no thanks. It's nothing less than the joyous habitual offering of those who 
recall a gracious table set before them in the presence of their enemies, of those who look forward to a glorious table yet to come. It is a means by which we imitate our infinitely hospitable God. See, service and hospitality, they go hand in hand. Peter points that out in 1 Peter 4, 9, and 10. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And then Jesus, he meshes these together in an iconic passage in Matthew 25. If you look at Matthew 25 in like 30-something, I don't have it down here, it's like verse 40, somewhere in there. It says, then the king who will say to you, those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. We have Jesus not only as the example but also the object here. And so we get to see what we do to others we're actually doing to Jesus. You know what that helps us do? Be friendly to that family member and welcome that family member who everyone else doesn't want around. That friend in the office who everyone does this and turns away from. That person that kind of gets on our nerves sometimes. Because we're not doing it toward them, we're doing it for ultimately for Jesus. So there's so many in our church that live this out. I could sit here or stand here and tell you story after story, starting now, through the week, 24-7, about people that I know personally here in this church that are carrying out serving and hospitality in an amazing way. And it's a joy to watch. So I know you might feel a little beat up today. And that's okay. But I also want you to be encouraged to know that it is happening, and I see it happening. But it doesn't mean we don't still need inspiration. It doesn't mean that we don't need a wake-up call. I know I do. So here it is. It's not a manipulation, but it's a call to abiding. It's a call for us to regularly abide with Jesus. And as this time of abiding increases, you will naturally become more obedient. You'll begin to think outside of yourself toward others. You'll be challenged and inspired to dedicate yourself and your family to a life of gospel-centered living and gospel-centered community. You may even adopt this statement. This is a statement that pops up on my phone once a week. One of these days, I'll probably get it tattooed somewhere. What's well, a powerful statement that I always have to think about because I need this reminder too. It says, I used to be afraid of failing at the things that really mattered to me. But now I'm more afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Maybe you're out there and you've been pursuing, if you really were honest with yourself, things that don't matter. I know I do. And all of us can take this time to really consider, have I been abiding with Jesus? Because abiding turns that around and abiding rejects that mindset. Abiding makes you a great neighbor. Abiding makes you a great servant. 
When it comes to opportunities to serve, you can even see on the screen, I just threw this up there because we have a website, we have locations. If you wanna practically take this step, you can scan this code, you can go on our website to the local outreach way, uh, to to that side of things under mission and click on that and see all kind of ways you can put this into action. You can also put in action through being involved in a small group, in a community group, and being hospitable that way. But maybe you want to talk about this further. Maybe you hated what I said and you want to just talk some more. That's fine. Email me. I'd love to talk to you more about what this looks like. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your love, thankful for your mercy. Thankful that we don't have to wear ourselves out trying to figure this out. That as we abide in you, you give us the strength. As we abide in you, you give us the things to share. As we abide in you, you give us a different perspective on this world. We're not chasing things that don't matter anymore. God, I pray you'll convict us during this time as we finish up to confess to you that we've been chasing things that don't matter. Maybe there's people in this room right now that don't know you and they've been chasing their whole lives and they've never come to the realization that you are Savior and King. I pray that they will recognize that today they can embrace you as their savior and follow you and see a life that they never imagined before. Bless us as we continue and finish up the song. In your name we pray, amen.